We work hard, we play hard. We are gamerpreneurs. Individuals who have chosen to give up the security of a nine to five in favor of getting to set our own hours, of doing the work that we want to do, and we refuse to give up the hobby that we grew up with in order to quote, grow up. We have learned countless laws of life and sales from the games that we play, and we excel in everything we do. We see the wonder and glory in every interaction. We fit in awkwardly with the rest of the world because they don't understand our quirkiness, and we wear it as a badge of pride. We are focused, clear, and know what we want. We are gamerpreneurs, and we are taking over the world. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Gamerpreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Bradford Carlton. Today, I have a very special guest for you. I have the content creator, Madrab Bread. I tried very hard to say that right. Uh, hey, Madrab, how's it going? Uh, I'm doing okay. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. It's a beautiful sunny day in Las Vegas. How about yourself? Uh, it's gloomy and awful. Where are you Welcome at? Welcome Canada. That's Okay. <laughs> that's the right that's the right response it's always miserable in canada sure so uh why don't you go ahead and start by telling us a little bit about yourself who are you and why are you even here uh hi i'm mdb i've been doing youtube videos for a decade uh i've been doing like a video a day for over eight years now i just kind of do let's plays and then I creatively stretch my legs and do all kinds of different things from reviews to Pokemon challenges now to used to do creepypasta readings. I've kind of just done everything. I'm a bit of an old school YouTuber in that um, idea that my channel is just a creative dumping ground where I put whatever I want. And how I ended up here is I got accidentally famous. Accidentally famous. You just kind of tripped into it, got some famous on you, you had to wipe that off. Just yeah, it's, uh, it's sometimes you just do this for 10 years and then <laughs> one series takes off really, really big. And it's like, it's not like I was tiny before that. I was like 61,000 subscribers, but now I'm getting over a thousand subscribers every single day. So it's a wow. bit different now. That's fantastic. So you're an overnight success, uh, overnight success that took 10 years to get there. Yeah, I think I have the longest uh, lead up to an overnight success of any channel I've ever heard of. So it's a little bit of a unique story there. All right. Well, before I really unpack, you know, your YouTube channel and really get into it, because it's, this sounds like you're absolutely blown it away. Um, I always start every podcast off with one question, and I'd like to ask you as well. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being high, how weird are you? I think I'm pretty low on that scale. Uh, as far as YouTubers go, which are naturally kind of weird. I think I'm probably one of the least weird ones. Uh, I, I think I only stand out because I am really bluntly honest with my opinion on everything. Uh, apparently that's why the Dutch really like me, or so they tell me, because apparently that's how it is in the Netherlands, but I kind of just say whatever I'm thinking and people seem to appreciate that. But I'm not actually that weird, I don't think. I'm I feel like all my goals and daily habits and everything are really normal, either than having an abnormal job. Wonderful. And I didn't realize we had Mr. World Worldwide here with us. Mm. <laughs> so can you uh, tell me how you first got started as a content creator, you know, way back when? Mm -hmm. um, so I was like 17, I guess. Yeah, I was 17 because it was uh, 10 years ago and I'm 27 now. Uh, I was in high school and I just watched a lot of um, YouTubers and people on Blip back when Blip was a thing. Um, and it was mostly like 
movie reviewers, game reviewers, let's players, some sketch comedy stuff. And I just always really liked it. And I was into video editing at that time because that was something uh, we had courses in in high school. And so I spent a lot of time learning how to edit video because it was just something I was really interested in. And so between my love of video and my love of video games, I decided ah, I'll try doing Let's Play. And so I just started recording myself doing live commentary playing games, which is something that I used to do all the time without recording it anyway. So it was natural to me. And I just kind of never stopped. Okay. So, Wonderful. So um, can you kind of walk us through, has, has your channel changed over the years or is it really just the same content day after day? Um, I don't think it's ever really changed in any major way. The core has never changed. The core of it has always been let's plays of whatever game I feel like playing. And then over the years, a couple times a year, I like to stretch my legs creatively and try something new as like a side project on the channel. And so that's like, I did creepypasta readings on the side for a while. I've done uh, game reviews on the side for a while. I have done uh, tips and tricks videos on the side for a while. And uh, the most recent one of those experiments was the Pokemon challenges, which is what blew up so hard. Um, I did like three of them, and then they started getting promoted on homepages really, really, really hard. And now, according to my friends in the Pokemon community who have been more in touch with this than I am, I'm apparently currently the fastest growing channel in the Pokemon category of all time, um, which we don't have a, a set statistic on that. So it's, there's, there's a possibility someone has beaten me on that, uh, but people seem to not be able to think of anyone but me on this one, which is weird. I'm an accidentally famous Pokétuber, I guess. That's fantastic. Now, are you happy being a, uh, a Pokétuber? <laughs> um, I don't call myself a Pokétuber either than an accidental one, because Pokémon is like 5% of what I do. I love the games, but... Uh, you know, the vast majority, vast majority of what I do is not Pokemon. It's just the vast majority of what gets views is Pokemon. Um, as for if I like it or not, uh, yeah, I'm really happy with it. The, uh, the views have been really good. It's really uh, rewarding to see this business I've been working on for so, so long in this creative outlet. It's like my hobby. It's my job. It's kind of, it's the main thing I do every day. To see it really take off has been nice. And, uh, and then obviously the influx of money has been big because I've lived most of my life uh, hovering above or below the poverty line. So to all of a sudden get big on YouTube and now like I literally paid off my whole debt and half a paycheck. Uh, wow. it's, kind, it's kind of a big deal for me. Like I've, I don't know what to do with the money because I've never had money. So I just bank it all and <laughs> making plans on like, you know, immigrating and getting a house and stuff like that. So uh, it's been pretty life-changing and yet I live my day-to-day -day life identically to before. The only difference is I work like an extra 20, 30 hours a week uh, because of the Pokemon challenges, because I didn't slow down anything else I was doing. I just decided to do an extra thing that's double the workload, because that's me. Oh, that is so cool. All right, like, I really wanna, I, I wanna kind of walk through from your beginning to where you are now, because I, I really want people to understand that they can do it too. Because I would I imagine in your own words, like you didn't expect to be as big as you are. Kind of yes and kind of no. Um, it's weird because I always knew that I had the skill set to make a living on it. Uh, I never knew how much of a living. I just figured it'd be like a, a modest living. Um, 
I didn't, I never knew when it would happen because I was fully aware that it can be pretty random. It can come very abruptly sometimes. Um, some people it's a very slow build and some people it is very abrupt. And I had kind of a little bit of both on that. Um, but I always knew that I'd be able to make a living off of it eventually. And it, it helped that, um, I was actually just tweeting about this earlier today, but something I would often hear from people who stumbled across my channel over the years from just random things that got mildly popular was uh, they would comment almost specifically saying every time that, they, that it feels like it's a 300,000 subscriber channel. And at the time, I would have had like 10,000 to 30,000 subscribers when I was getting those comments a lot. And it's very flattering, but it's also kind of frustrating because it's like, it's very flattering that they don't look at the sub count and they think, oh, this guy feels like a really successful channel. So that's flattering, but it's, it's frustrating at the same time because it's like, okay, if everybody seems to think that this is, this is the kind of channel that'd be really successful, why isn't it yet? Right. Um, so the fact that it's now blowing up so hard is kind of vindication. It's, yeah, those... I guess those people were right, and that, that feels good. So I, I always thought I'd be reasonably big, never super famous or anything, uh, but I didn't think it would quite happen like this. I didn't see this one coming so well. Sure. Uh, this is cool, though. So um, I want to give people an idea of kind of the money on it because, you know, you know what it's like having been a 1,000 channel subscri uh, subscriber channel, 10,000 <laughs> 100,000, now you're up to over 200,000. So mm, what's yeah. kind of like the money spread along that way, if, if there was money? So it's, it's really weird because um, how much you get paid on YouTube through ad revenue uh, can be highly dependent on the individual channel and what YouTube behind the scenes is categorizing you as. Because your, your CPM, generally the, the advertising money you're getting per thousand or so views uh, can be, can very wildly vary from person to person, channel to channel. Um, I don't want to go into other people's, like other specific channels numbers, because I'm sure that uh, most people aren't very public with their numbers. I'm very public with mine because I, I don't care. That's who I am. Uh, so I can tell you right now, my CPM right now on average is, I'm going to double check it right now, in fact, to give you the most up-to-date number because no one ever shares their CPM. Mine is 11 point, uh, was $11.73 American. Uh, that is my average CPM across my whole channel. So that is brought down a little bit from uh, by my Let's Play stuff, which is worth a bit less. And it's brought up more by my Pokemon challenges, which are worth more. In general, Pokemon videos seem to earn way more money than most video games because I think YouTube seems to categorize it as safer for advertisers. Even though you can swear like a sailor in your Pokemon videos, it seems like they still weight that very highly, uh, which is strange because your average um, channel that's doing gameplay stuff that is just kind of general audience gameplay stuff seems to have a CPM of like uh, $3 to $5. So... Pokemon people, though, have like 10 to 20, which is astronomical money when it comes to like, when, when you think about views per thousand, or sorry, money per thousand views. And again, it's a rough estimate, the, the CPM, and it changes month by month and changes video by video. And there's no real way of really knowing how much money someone's making unless they literally tell you. Um, for whatever reason, Pokemon stuff is worth way more money than most video games. I think Minecraft is kind of in the same boat of being weighted very heavily towards okay. large amounts of money. 
Um, so before my Pokemon stuff really started taking off, uh, I was getting, I would say like a bad month for advertising revenue was about 400 American dollars and a good one was about 600 American dollars. And so my income was supplemented a lot through um, Patreon, through direct donations on my Twitch streams, a bit through uh, Twitch subscriptions and ad revenue, although that was quite low. That's usually under $100 uh, combined. I'm, I'm just talking in American money because most Canadians talk in American money anyway. Sure. Um, the conversion is very good from American to Canadian, I have to say. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, I was, it was enough that I was able to, I could live in the very modest lifestyle that I live, mostly because my wife also has uh, a decent day job. And so with our money together, we can live here okay, even though the place we live is totally overpriced because welcome to Southern Ontario, everything is wildly overpriced. Um, but it's enough money that if I lived in a cheap to live place like um, North Carolina or Georgia or something, um, I probably could have actually been living decently uh, just off the YouTube and like Patreon and that stuff. The money sure. generated for my show as a whole. But uh, ever since the explosion, the popularity of my Pokemon challenge stuff, um, now, like, I'm still trying to calculate how much it's going to be. We don't even really know yet because it's it's going up so quickly. It keeps going up. And it's I've only been blowing up for, like, four or five months now. So there's always this thing of, oh, is this going to get less popular? Uh, how, how much less popular is it going to get? When is that going to happen? Because right now it just keeps going up, and it's it's wild. So, you know, be responsible with your money, but it's looking like... Uh, the the money is something very comfortable. Like, I'm talking something, you could raise a, a family of four and own a house, as long as it's not a super expensive place to live, uh, just fine off my income alone if it stays the way it is. Well, that's fantastic. That is so yeah. cool. So, I mean, what are your, your plans for the channel? I mean, I, I can't imagine that you had like a six-month, or five-year plan going into you blowing up like this. But now that you're getting <laughs> yeah. all this capital, you have to have to reinvest some of it at least, right? Yeah. So, uh, I only started using a bank account last year because, again, I... <laughs> Uh, I am not used to having money, and so I'm, uh, thankfully, I'm not a big spender. I live very lean, and so the vast majority of the money, like, I bought a few things to upgrade the show a little bit, and then I couldn't think of anything to spend it on, so it's all in a bank. Uh, but I am planning on reinvesting, uh, because uh, it just seems like a responsible thing to do that I'm, I'm looking into. I have some other YouTuber friends um, who have made good money for a lot longer than me, and so they're giving me advice on looking into... I think it was called like mutual funds or something. And then there's like stocks and stuff. And it's all very confusing to me, but I'm slowly starting to learn what all of this stuff is. Again, banking is new to me. So there's that. Um, but I am looking in, in, in investing in some way, uh, because if I'm going to have this kind of uh, money coming in, then I should probably try and figure out what is the safest way to store or to invest this money so that if the channel were to ever get uh, much less popular, that things are going to be okay. Sure. All right. So um, more about kind of your brand. So the stuff around you, not just you. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any like merchandise for sale? Uh, I've had little bits of merchandise like t-shirts and mugs over the years, but okay. they all suck and no one buys them and I don't promote them. <laughs> okay, even, even now with your channel growing the way it is, you're still not seeing an uptick? Uh, no. They're they're all the, the 
the designs are passable generally, but they're like references to stuff that like a hundred people probably saw. So, eh. Okay, cool. Um, so you got your Patreon. Um, has that seen an uptick as well, or is that it has. still steady? Okay. I don't think I've even said the word Patreon in one of my videos since my explosion in popularity. So I'm not exactly promoting it, and yet I still have seen an uptick. Um, I think I'm making like 200 American or so more than before um, the explosion popularity, which is very little, I guess, when you compare it to how many views I was getting before and how many I'm getting now. Um, but I had a weird channel before in that I think I'm the only channel I've ever seen where I was getting more dollars on Patreon per month than I got average views on my average video because the people who had been watching me were watching me for so long. They basically grew up with me that they're just, I don't know, really invested in me and wanted to see me do well. And I appreciate that. Okay, wonderful. I I have a ton more questions, but I kind of want to like ground us a little bit in who, who you are. Why um why my dry bread? Uh like the name? Yeah. It's a nonsense word. Uh so my name is Madrat Stowe, which in Canada is very hard to read and immediately know how to pronounce. I mean, I guess Madrat's hard in any language because it's like a dead version of Welsh, which is borderline a dead language so that's not an easy name uh but uh it, it doesn't help that i'm also in a country where a lot of people are french and so if you see a name that you don't understand you'll assume it's french and then say like madro or something which is not my name uh so i just had a lot of nicknames growing up and so as a joke when i was 16 it would have been my friend mike turned to me one day and said you don't have enough nicknames i'm gonna make a new nickname Madrai bread. I'm like, all right, that's my new nickname. And then we spent the day trying to workshop how to spell it. Because the original spelling, it's all just one word and everyone pronounced it differently when we showed it to them. So we're like, okay, this isn't working. Uh, so we just put it out like phonetically and it became that. So it has nothing to do with uh, moistness or a wheat product or any kind of possessive term. It is completely a nonsense word. And I really wish it wasn't like my nickname just because everyone like because the whole point of spelling it that way was so that everyone would say it the same way, but everyone puts the emphasis differently and everyone, like everyone says bread differently. And so it didn't help me in any way, but I, you can't help what nickname takes off with you. Like it only took two weeks before teachers at school were calling me bread or MDB. So that's just my name. Like <laughs> one person in my life calls me Madrat and that's my wife. That's the only one. So that's my name now is bread. Even your teachers called that you that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they call me Madrai or MDB because that's what everyone calls me and it's just easier. Okay, um, can we walk through the process of making a YouTube video? Because sure. there's a lot of people out there sitting around thinking they wish they could be doing it, but like what, mm -hmm. what's the process when you started? What's the process now? Is it any different? It totally depends on the video. Um, like just as... Uh, an example of how different it can be. I'll give you the process for a Let's Play video um, and the process for one of my Pokemon challenges. The process for one of my Let's Play videos, um, assuming it's like a locally recorded one, not a live streamed one, it is, I set up all my audio software and everything. I've got a fairly fancy audio setup um, where I, I can get Discord, which is what I use to co-commentate with people. I have that on one audio track. I've got my system audio on another, which will be the game. And I've got my microphone on a third one. We open the game. I, I open up um, OBS Studio, which is my recording 
uh, software of choice. It's free. It's really, really good, actually. And um, I record us playing the game and do the commentary, and I do improv comedy, so it's like that's just natural to me. I have, I'm well-practiced at it. And we just do our thing for about a half an hour or so, stop the recording, name the footage, do as many as we want in a day or as many as we have time for, bring it into Adobe Premiere Pro, which is my editing software of choice. And I mostly just trim the beginning a little bit, trim the end a little bit, uh, slap a nice intro on it that I made years ago. And uh, sometimes I'll watch through the whole video, take a lot of parts I thought were really funny and put them in another timeline for a future video that's like a best of clip show that's good for promoting the show and showing off what it is to, to new people. Um, that's very little work for me, mostly because I've spent so much time doing it that it's like, uh, it, I'm just very proud to say I can do it very quickly. Whereas the Pokemon challenges is a lot more of a process. First, I need to come up with an idea for the Pokemon challenge. A lot of them are requested by people watching the show in the comments, on Twitter, stuff like that. Uh, I write down all the ideas I really like on my Trello page, which is a great website for organizing thoughts, especially collaborative ones. Although uh, for those that's not collaborative, I do the whole Pokemon challenge thing myself. Uh, so all I do is I grab the, the, the ROM of the game that I'm going to be doing the challenge in. I use a program called the Universal Pokemon Randomizer to set up the parameters of the challenge. So like if it's beat the whole game with one of this thing, then I have to be able to start with that thing. So I use that to start with that thing. And then what I do is I have a Word document open. Uh, actually, it's an open office document, but whatever, where um, I write software. down... Love it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I write down... Um, kind of a little intro blurb of what I'm gonna, what I'm gonna be saying, um, where I talk a little bit about why the challenge is hard and what the rules of the challenge are. I want that to last about for a minute of the beginning of the video. And then from then on, I'm simply playing the game and I have the Word document open on another monitor. Um, and whenever something noteworthy is happening, I hit my record button, so I record the footage. And then when it's, when it's done, I then take a little break and I write down in my own words, like what just happened basically. And I do that through the whole game until I have it beaten. Obviously not in one setting because some of these take like 40 to 80 hours. So it takes a while. Um, once I'm done all of that, I'll have all my footage. I have it like really meticulously labeled to try and speed up editing. Um, I'm experienced with the game, so I generally know when to start recording because I know, like, okay, this upcoming battle is definitely going to be noteworthy uh, just because I, I know the game's inside out at this point. And so um, once I have all the footage, I have my whole script done. I send it off to my friend. He proofreads it to try and anticipate um, maybe I explain something badly somewhere and he can say, hey, you should reword this. People are going to be confused or there's just something stupid I put in there that didn't make any sense. And, you know, just whatever kind of touching up he can do with it. And he sends it back to me. Uh, I then open up Adobe Audition, which is my, um, my audio editing software of choice. I just sit here and I record me reading the whole thing, which is what I was doing earlier today, actually, right before this. Um, I apply my audio effects to it that I made over the years that just helps touch up and clean up the audio bring it into Premiere. Then I had to go through the whole thing and like cut out every line flub. And I flub lines all the time. So <laughs> that takes, that, that brings the, the runtime of the, the audio clip down to like half. And then, uh, so I've got that in my editor. I've got the audio edited down. So it's just a straight voiceover of what the final video will be like. Then I stretch an image over the entire timeline 
and I go through another run of the timeline, making a cut in the image every time that I know I'm going to switch the footage to something else. And the reason I do this is you get flawless timing when you insert the footage, because my next run through is inserting the footage that is relevant to whatever I'm talking about. And so all I have to do then is I bring all my footage in, I find the little bit that I'm talking about, and then all I have to do is bring the footage in, click speed and duration on the picture that is currently the same length as what I want to have there, copy its time to the time of the new video clip. It'll speed it up or slow it down to whatever it needs to be to perfectly match my words, and then just replace the image with it. And by doing that, I can have everything always last exactly as long as I need to to follow along with the pace of my words. A lot of people try to make their words match the video. I take a completely different approach. This is about telling a story. I'm a bard. I'm telling the story of overcoming the struggle of my challenge. And so the core of the video is the audio. It's my voiceover track. And so everything else has to be conformed to that. And that's why the pacing is really good. I, I do a run through of that. I make little uh, marker notes in my timeline whenever it's like, oh, edit in a picture of this that's relevant, like a list of moves or something, whatever is relevant to what I'm talking about. Uh, so I then do a run through where I actually do all those marker edits and insert that stuff. Then I do the first minute of the video, which is all putting in uh, pictures and, and showing the rules on the screen and stuff. Then the last thing I do is I put the soundtrack in I just go through, I have the soundtrack of all the games downloaded. I put in the songs where I think they fit the best to carry the mood of the video, render it, upload it, do a whole description, do a thousand tags, make a big fancy thumbnail, and then I schedule it. So you'll notice that when I talked about the Let's Play thing, it took me probably a minute to explain it. And when I talked about that one, I've probably been going for like seven minutes. It's a lot more work. Yeah, no, and that's you, one video. you just blew my mind. Like you actually mm. just gave me a whole bunch of advice for my own editing. Cause I was one of those yeah, guys who yeah. doesn't match up the audio first. I'm like, let's put the video in and try to match the audio. Oh man, thank you so much for that. That's great. I'm happy to help because I'm the only person I know who does that and it speeds things up. It like, just makes so much believe. sense when you, I hear you say yeah. like, absolutely I need to be doing that. Yeah, it's it's very, you get fast at it. It's like control R is, um, I think control R by default is speed and duration. Although I may have changed it to that. I don't know. You can change any key bindings you need to speed it up. So uh, I highly, highly recommend doing that to anyone watching who edits anything, like anything where you need to match footage to a voiceover. That is a fantastic way to do it. Oh, yeah. So... So your Let's Plays take you maybe an hour and a half to do total. You know, mm -hmm. figure out your tags and, and all that included. But it sounds like your challenges could take at least a week. Yeah, that's why, um, because I upload one every single week, uh, I do one every single Saturday at 4 p.m., um, I will intentionally do certain ones that I think I can get done really fast to buy myself time to be able to do ones that take more than a week. So on an average week, uh, I work on the channel as a whole, um, between 70 and 85 hours. Um, that's just how I function. I love working. Uh, I get stressed out when I don't get enough work done. What, what, what's relaxing to me is seeing a big render queue at the end of the day of videos that are going to get finished overnight. So uh, I'm just a machine like that. Um, but while I'm editing a Pokemon challenge, 
I'll be grinding out levels in another Pokemon challenge at the same time. Like I, it's all about multitasking when it comes to stuff like that is learning what multitasking you're good at. That's not going to ruin your productivity on both things. Um, I, I have learned to uh, watch Skillshare tutorials and stuff while I'm inserting footage. Uh, I've, I've gotten good at a lot of things like that, um, that help you in ways that you wouldn't necessarily think of, but I've been doing it for a decade. So I've just picked up a lot of little things over the years. Okay. Now, at what point did you go, we'll say full time? Because, you know, 80 hours a week is a lot of time. And, yeah. you know, the Let's Plays don't take that much time. I get that, but you do one a day. So at what point was it you went from this is just kind of a, a part-time hobby type thing to this is what I do now? Um, I, who how old would I have been? Like 20? 19? 19 probably. Um, because my idea was always, oh, I'd start a Let's Play channel. It'd be a fun hobby. And if it ever takes off, that's awesome. And I could quit my day job. Uh, so living in Southern Ontario, where the job market is not great, and I'm disabled, uh, so it's extra hard to find work, uh, I, was, I had a two-year failed job search where I was not able to find literally any job. I did not get a single offer. I was applying all the time to everywhere that I think that I could physically work. Um, and I did not find anything. And so I was naturally doing more and more YouTube just to spent my time and eventually just got to a point where it's like okay i think it's safe to say i'm not finding a job here and i have no ability to move so i'm just gonna throw everything i have into youtube and so i started doing it full time uh yeah i guess that would have been eight years ago around when i started doing a video a day minimum and there have been times where i was doing like two to three videos a day and there were times where it's just one video every single day and it, it fluctuates a little bit uh, but I think I've only ever missed like a few days and that was just due to like a computer exploding once and that got fixed fairly fast. So I was able to make up with, uh, for it when I came back, I made sure to pump out a ton of videos. Uh, people were pretty understanding. I think I probably had like 2000 subscribers back then anyway. So there wasn't, weren't many people there to be disappointed. And, uh, YouTube was different back then too. Uh, people were, people were less angry, I guess. Okay, wonderful. So um, what's the proce process of um, marketing these videos? So YouTube lets you do tagging now. How extensively do you do tags? How much research do you do, do, you do before you do them? Can you just kind of walk us through that? Um, I think I have some of the best tags of like, for like Let's Play stuff. Um, because you'll notice that even back before I was very popular, um, a lot I had the top result on YouTube for a lot of not like recently at the time super popular games, but games that um, did really well when they came out and that people remember very fondly. And so people are often going to go back and be like, oh, I remember that game. And they, they go search it on YouTube. And that's how I picked up a lot of my views over the years, like um, Fable the Lost Chapters, Age of Empires 3, stuff like that, where it's, uh, it's, it's real cult classics in their genre. Um, and I was the top result for those things for years. And that is because of my really good tagging. I understand that um, the, the, the search algorithm is actually a lot more complicated than a lot of people seem to think. A lot of people seem to think it's like mystical. It's not. It's, it has a lot going into it, but it's actually quite predictable. Um, for instance, if you have a word in your, in your title, description, 
and your tag, and you say it in the video clearly enough that the that the close the auto generated closed captioning thinks that's what you said, then you know if I had a video on Fable: The Lost Chapters and I had Fable: The Lost Chapters and gameplay in all three of those things, and I said all of those words in the video very clearly, then when someone goes searching Fable: The Lost Chapters gameplay, then after a little bit of metadata has been built up on the video because People have watched it a bit, you know, the watch time is in a bit. YouTube has a general idea of the appeal of this video. It's going to put it really high at the search ranks as long as there aren't really heavy hitters above you because it's, it's going to understand, okay, like the, they're searching this term and this term is used very, very heavily in the metadata of this video. So this is probably what they're looking for. And it's, it performs well when people do click on it. So of course the quality of the video matters a lot because if people are clicking your video, but then they watch for like two seconds and they click off, the metadata is going to tell YouTube, oh, this isn't what they're actually looking for. You know, it, that's to combat clickbait, for instance. Um, and so uh, I, I did really well for a long time based on that. Just is the advice I gave other Let's Players for a long time is don't try to compete on the biggest, newest, flashiest thing. Um, sure, maybe if you're really, really passionate about it, then that's perfectly fine too, because passion can take you far. Um, but be specific, which is advice I didn't take, uh, because my channel works in spite of myself, because I'm stubborn. Uh, but the more specific you are, the better you're going to work your way into a niche and start building up an audience, and slowly over time, you can work your way out from there. But if you're able to pick something where a lot of people are going to search it over the course of a year, but there's not a whole lot of competition, well, that's exactly what you're looking for. You're looking for high search, low competition, because you'll have a reasonable chance of getting reasonably high rates so people can start to see you. Uh, obviously, you need to make quality videos. And it's going to get searched enough that, yes, you could build a bit of a community on this and start to get your foothold and work your way up from there. I forgot the original point of the question. <laughs> uh, that's all right. No, you, you gave some great advice there. I, I actually have a follow-up, so we'll just kind of go with that instead. Sweet. Okay. Um, so does so what you're saying is you you in some instances start with your tag and your keywords in mind, and then you make the video based on that, or you just make the video and then try to figure it out later? Mm, I, I would say it's a little bit of both. It, it depends on how you want to do it, really. If you're looking at your YouTube channel like a business rather than purely as a hobby, like if you're looking at it purely as a hobby, do whatever you want, just have fun with it. If you are, if you're very specifically trying to get it to grow and get more popular, then um, then it is a bit of both. It has to be something that you're knowledgeable on, and it has to be something that you're passionate about, or else you're probably not going to get very far. Because although if you're knowledgeable on it, but you're not passionate about it, then you're going to end up getting pigeonholed into something that you really don't enjoy doing, and you're going to burn out from that. If you're doing something that you're passionate about, but you're not knowledgeable on, then people are going to pass over you for other people, and they quickly realize there's people doing it better than you who, you know, they know their stuff better than you. If you're passionate and you're knowledgeable about it, then, then that's perfect. What you want to do there is you want to start figuring out, okay, what do people want to know about the subject? What do people search about the subject? You can use like uh, Google search trends and stuff is really great for that. Uh, there's programs like vidIQ, which are good for that. Um, I believe TubeBuddy does something similar, but I'm less experienced with that. Um, you want to see what are people 
uh, searching related to that. Like one of the easiest ways you can tell, in fact, is let's say it's a video game you're really passionate about. You type the name of the video game into YouTube and then you just hit the space bar and look what the autocompletes are because that gives you a general list of what people are searching uh, for that. And, you know, maybe if you see one where it's like, oh, people are asking about the new Fortnite guns or something. I don't know much about Fortnite. But let's say you're really passionate about Fortnite, you're really knowledgeable about Fortnite, and it's some new shotguns were released, I don't know. And you're like, oh, I actually know a lot about that. Do some research on it, of course, and uh, don't worry too much about being the first guy to it. People worry too much about that. You want to be the best guy to it. Um, look into it, research it, and make a real proper video on it. And even if you don't get high up on the search result right away, you'll get in the suggested videos of the other people doing content on that. Suggested videos get clicked a lot, and that's how most people get their start nowadays, is getting found through suggested videos of bigger YouTubers and starting to build up their own audience through that. So the tags are really important. That's what's going to get you in search and in suggested videos, and that's the foothold that you need. Uh, if you're going to have a word in your tags and you think it's an important word, like the name of the game or something as vital as gameplay when we're talking about a video game, because that's very highly searched, you want to also have that in your description. Now, YouTube doesn't let you literally just type tags in your description. Uh, they don't want just this horrible word vomit all over your description. So the rule is you're, you have to actually like work it into a sentence, basically. Um, but you are allowed to do that. They, they have no problem with you doing it as long as it's not just putting your tags in your, in your description. And if the word is vital enough and it feels right to put it in your title, put it in your title too, because that also helps uh, with the, the search algorithm and everything. And of course, say what the video is in the video, because even if it feels a little redundant sometimes, it will get picked up by closed captioning automatically, and that is metadata that does help you. All right, that is fantastic advice. Thank you so much. That was, that's, this is so jam-packed full of advice. Yeah, I um, try my best to help. Yeah. Um, how about this? When you were first, I don't know, if you could go back to when you were first starting now, you know, after having had this kind of massive success the past few months, and if you could advise yourself on what to do to try to duplicate it quicker, what would you say? If I want to duplicate it quicker, um, hmm. Well, <laughs> the obvious and less least helpful answer is, man, start doing Pokemon challenges before they existed yet. You'll get in on the ground floor. Um, but the more useful advice would be, one, learning the tagging and how the search algorithm and all of that stuff works right from the beginning really would have shaved a few years off of uh, of building up the audience. I could have really, like, God, especially back then, Let's Play channels used to grow a lot easier back then. And, um, man, if I knew what I know about searching and descriptions and tagging and metadata and all of that, if I knew it then, what I know now in terms of that stuff... I would have gotten big on the Let's Plays before I ever got big on anything else. And that would have been really cool because the Let's Plays is actually the thing that is my favorite thing to do because I love improv comedy. And there's a healthy amount of that and a healthy amount of teaching people a game and a healthy amount of, of just having fun playing a video game with my friends. And those are all my favorite things. Um, so the most important thing that I would tell a younger version of myself is, uh, is just how all those algorithms work and that there's nothing to like there's I, I had this thing that a lot of very small youtubers had especially back then and they have a little bit to now where it's like 
oh, I don't, I don't want to clickbait. And it, that's perfectly fine. But the thing is, a lot of people will interpret clickbait as literally just making a catchy title or something where it's like, it doesn't lie in any way. It doesn't mislead in any way. It's just, you made it look nice. Like I, I have like a red dot as like a separator for parts of my titles nowadays. I used to just use like a, a dash, a hyphen, whatever you want to call it. And that was fine. But just by using a red dot instead, uh, it looks way nicer. And it's got color, so it's kind of eye-catching. The video content is of the exact same quality. And my click-through rate is higher now. So more people who are seeing it are willing to click it. That is literally just a positive. There's almost no effort put into doing that change. And it doesn't negatively affect anything. So I would tell a younger version of myself to kind of get over those hang-ups a little bit faster. What matters is the quality of the video and that you don't lie to anyone. You don't mislead anyone. Don't worry about, yeah, you, you titled it the big goofy thing, but don't just, you told them what the game is. You told them what you're doing and everything. Don't make your titles so boring. Don't make your thumbnails so boring. Like this is, this is a comedy show. It doesn't need to be so clinical, you know, just Get over the, the hang-ups a little bit faster about like, ah, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. That's what the big famous YouTubers do. I'm going to do it the right way. There's nothing wrong with collaborating. You like their channel. They like your channel. Why not have some fun? Do a video together. If it's successful, that's great. If it's not, you had fun. And so, yeah, that's a common thing I just see with a lot of small YouTubers is they have a lot of hang-ups on stuff that really doesn't matter. Just remember at the end of the day, is the video good? Is the audience happy? Uh, is it doing well? And did you lie to anyone? Because if, if you lied to anyone or it's, or you didn't have fun or any of that stuff, then you're doing something wrong. But if you can't honestly say that you did any of those wrong, then what are you so worried about? All right. Fantastic. So um, let's see your channel. So you've had a few, a few, like one series in particular, just kind of go gangbusters. Yeah. Has it been a rising tide lifts all boats kind of thing? Are you seeing more yes. activity on all of your videos because of it? Yes, definitely. It's actually rising tide lifts all boats in multiple ways. In fact, I use that term on Twitter a lot. I like that term. Um, it's in multiple ways. Uh, one, all of my let's play videos have been getting more popular. Part of it is that um, I do use the success of the Pokemon challenges to promote my Let's Play videos some more, let them know that like, hey, I do these other things. Like I, I do uh, some Pokemon Let's Plays as kind of the gateway. So if you're in, you came in from Pokemon, you might give a chance to a Let's Play uh, of Pokemon on my channel. And then you might just grow to like my commentary and like me and decide, oh, I'm going to check out some other stuff that he does. And that's great. I have actually seen a good amount of people moving over from that. And the Let's Plays are the most popular they've ever been on my channel, which... Uh, is fantastic because I had years of growing by like from 30,000 subscribers to 60,000 subscribers. My Let's Play videos, on average, the view count was the same. That doesn't sound like it would make much sense, but that's just how it was. Whereas with this, for whatever reason, and it's probably that I'm very intentionally making sure that they're aware of the other things on the channel and not being pushy with it or anything, um, 
it's, it, I am seeing a lot of bleed over into my other videos, which is fantastic. And the other way that um, the rising tide lifts all boats is I'm not the first guy to do Pokemon challenges. They've existed forever. Um, and there's a few from channels such as uh, Picaspri and JRose11. Uh, they both did uh, one and three Pokemon challenges, respectively, I believe, before I started. Um, those videos did quite well on YouTube. I believe a couple of them have a few million views. Um, I saw those and I'm like, these are, that looks like a lot of fun. I want to try it. And so like the first 10 seconds of my first one, I showed them both out and I just kind of did my own thing with it. And it's crazy because at first I would have some people being like, oh, you're ripping them off. And anytime you try anything, people are going to call you a rip off of something. Back in the day on YouTube, if you ever swore in a video, you are now a rip off of the angry video game nerd. That's just what people would call you. It was weird. Um, but now what I'm finding is there are literally about two dozen channels who have started their own Pokemon challenges, are doing quite well, and they shout me out and they tell me that they started because of me and it is very flattering. And now I see angry comments in their comment section saying, you're ripping off MDB and I, I tell them to shut up because <laughs> no, have celebrated. We've... I've kind of accidentally spearheaded this whole thing on YouTube. Tons of people are having fun watching these videos across all these channels. Tons of people are seeing success, making them themselves and having fun with it. That's awesome. It's all of these YouTubers are getting started up doing this thing that they're having fun doing. People are having fun watching it. They're making good money out of it and getting their careers started. And it's doing well for me too. I literally tell them, don't be afraid of doing the same challenge that I did. That's perfectly fine. You'll get in my suggested videos, you'll grow through it, and then you can just do whatever you want. Have fun. Like, I don't know. I can only see that as a good thing. I want more competition. More competition makes me work harder. That's wonderful. That's a great attitude to have too. A lot yeah. of people are like, oh, competition, it's going to take, you know, food out of my mouth. But that's not necessarily true because competition makes you be more innovative. Yeah, and that spreads it across more of YouTube, more people get into watching Pokemon challenges. And so as, as far as I'm concerned, if I were to lose out on any money due to other ones getting popular, that's largely my own fault because I'd be dropping the ball. As long as I keep on top of my quality and I keep on top of my schedule and I, I'm having fun with it, then I don't think I'm ever really going to be in trouble doing that. And I'm just really happy to see that other people are doing well with it as well. All right. Wonderful. Now, so do you have any advice for someone, we'll say, like me, my channel currently has nine subscribers, which I'm woot woot about because it's, you know, I started only a couple of weeks ago. That's pretty cool. Yeah, but, that's not bad. That was faster than me. So, so for somebody maybe a little before where I'm at now, where they're just brand new starting, do you have any advice for them? What's, what are like the basics they have to know about building something on YouTube? Okay. Um, pretty much, uh, almost anything you do on YouTube is probably going to have a voiceover. And so, uh, a piece of advice that I got from my high school, um, like um, ComTech was the name of the class, communications technology, but it's just video making. Um, I don't know why it was called that. It has nothing to do with communications technology. Uh, really good advice that he gave me that I believe to this day is video is 70% audio. Uh, and so what he meant by that was, let's say you click on some random YouTube video if the audio is bad, if it's really bad, if there's like some awful background noise or something, you're probably gonna click off that video real fast. Even if the video quality looks really slick, 
but if the video quality, you know, the bit rate's not so good, the quality's a little low, the resolution's a little low, but the voice and the music sounds really buttery smooth, they'll stay. People care about audio more than they care, than they care about video, and audio is easier to do and cheaper to do now than ever with all kinds of free audio editing software like Audacity um, to like clean up your white noise in your background and stuff. And um, there's some fairly cheap microphones out there that are shockingly good, as long as your recording environment isn't horrible. And uh, yeah, really get on top of fixing up your voiceover audio right away. It's one of the most important things for getting audience retention. And audience retention is one of the biggest things that will make YouTube decide to promote your videos more. Because if people are clicking your video and they're watching the whole thing, more on average, um, YouTube is more likely to promote it because that is telling YouTube they have found what they were looking for because they watched the whole thing. Um, and so there's all kinds of free tutorials on YouTube. Um, if you're a Skillshare person, uh, there's all kinds of great audio advice on Skillshare. Uh, and it doesn't break the bank at all to have good audio. I have heard people have some shockingly good audio out of like $30, $40, USB microphones, you can get some real nice audio out of that if your recording environment is fine and you, you know your way around a little bit of audio editing software. Okay, now recurring viewers, um, was that something that just kind of randomly happens or did you have to like promote to a bunch of people and create you know, relationships first? It's um, what, the thing that makes a one-time viewer into like an avid viewer, recurring viewer, whatever you want to call them, is always hard to peg down because it really depends on the individual. But um, yeah, I see that pain of that light nearly in your eye. Oh yeah, <laughs> roughly around two o'clock every day, the sun just decides to be right in my videos. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... It's, it's always hard to peg down exactly what turns a viewer into a reoccurring viewer. I was actually just reading a comment from another interview I did um, on another YouTube channel. I was reading a comment today on it from uh, Armode, who's uh, a viewer who's been watching me for, uh, I'm going to say five or six years, she's been a vocal part of the community on like streams and discord and all that stuff. And uh, she was saying in her comment that it was kind of growing with me watching that I'm, I'm very open with my personal life and kind of seeing me go through my struggles. Uh, she got very, very attached to uh, me and the channel through that and through the community and everything, uh, just because I'm very open and honest with the people watching. And that I always try to remember that like, although you're just seeing a username and a profile picture that's probably of a cat or something. Uh, that is an actual human who has had a long and storied life that you cannot even begin to comprehend. And so no matter how awful of a thing they may have just said, and it may be directed at you because welcome to the internet, uh, they're probably a cooler person than you think in that moment and maybe be a little bit nicer. Um, so a lot of people seem to have become recurring uh, viewers of me just through the fact that um, I'm a lot more open than I think YouTubers tend to be. Um, not, but not in like, a, um, not in like a, this is my life, everybody. Look at my life. I'm going to vlog my whole life. Some channels are like that and that's perfectly fine. Mine is just, you get glimpses into it and people will ask about it and I'll just give you an answer about it. Um, and so people saw like 
you know, when I, when I, when I lost my house, cause we were going through a lot of financial troubles, um, people just saw like, oh, one day I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be uploading a little bit less, everybody, uh, lose my house on like April, whatever. So I'm just going to be mass recording. I'm going to be doing one, one video a day for the next little while. So I can stockpile a bunch to make sure that, uh, we can ride this thing out. Cause I don't know how long I'll be there. And then like, literally they could see that when I, when I moved to Toronto in the, the one bedroom apartment with my mom, um, like literally one room, like our beds are up next to each other at the, the footboard is up against the fridge. Uh, I still kept doing a video a day and all of a sudden on the streams, you can see on the webcam, yeah, that's one room. Uh, just the, and see, that's the thing is like, you can, you kind of just live your life along with me, I guess. And so that's how it happened for me. Um, for other people, I would say the most reliable way to have reoccurring viewers obviously it depends on what you're doing on YouTube, but I'd say that the absolute most consistent thing is that people like your personality and that you are consistently yourself. They want to tune in each time and see the person that they were looking for. People on YouTube get attached less to brand names and channels as a whole as much as they get attached to the individuals actually susan wojcicki the um ceo of youtube she put it uh the best i've ever heard it the way she described it is people come to youtube not for polish but for texture and that is such a good way to describe it polish is great but people want to see the stuff that is not as slick and clean as tv they want to see real people and, uh, and so I think that's why people get so attached to individuals more so than brands. It's, it's why I say like when people bring up brands on YouTube, I'd say more often than not, the person is the brand. Like when, when people come to my channel, they're coming to my channel for me. When they're coming to my friend Bob Wolf's channel, they're coming for Bob or for his brother, Will, or for both of them. They, they don't particularly care that it's the wolf den. They care that it's Bob and Will. Okay. Uh, thank you again. I, you just keep dumping stuff on me and like all these <laughs> other questions keep popping up and I forget where they yeah. are because new questions keep popping up. This yeah, is so it's great. okay. I can go forever. I find this stuff fun. Oh, uh, so do I. Um, how about, let's, let's kind of change gears for just a second. I want to know about you as a person, as a gamer. So mm -hmm. when did you first start playing video games? I th my mom tells me I was like one and a half or two years old, uh, but I don't remember back that far because I was one and a half or two years old. Um, first video game console I ever had would have been the Nintendo Entertainment System because uh, my mom had one. Um, and I also would have played some games on MS-DOS. I remember there was a golf game on MS-DOS back before Windows um, because, you know, I, I grew up in like a village so our stuff was a little bit out of date i was born in 1992 you know the snes was out by the time i was playing video games and yet i was playing the nes and the genesis uh but i've kind of just been playing video games as long as i can remember it's it's my second favorite art form in the world is video games okay wonderful so like how did you progress from you know the nes up to 17 year old you where you're going to decide to start this YouTube channel. So at what point, like, what were you playing? What's your, your typical genre? I've never really had, well, I guess I have genres that I, I like on average more than others, but I've always 
really liked a wide variety of games, but I would say that the things that I most often gravitate towards are things with uh, with RPG elements. Uh, I like strategy games quite a bit. Uh, stealth games, actually, I like a lot, even though that's the total opposite of strategy games. I guess, I guess not totally, but like you control it completely differently. Um, uh, I don't know. There's all kinds of games. Uh, the first thing I ever Let's Played was Fallout 1, which I believe was a game from 1997, if I'm remembering the year right. I still replay Fallout 1 and 2 every year because I just love those games. They're some of my favorite RPGs. And that's actually makes sense that would be my first one because it's an RPG strategy hybrid. Sure, um, it was point and click. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, point and click uh, hex-based where it's, uh, you know, it had, the, it had the, um, the hexagonal tiles and, you know, you count out your action points of how far you want to move and you have your action points attached to your different attacks and actions and whatnot. Um, and it was just a really good hybrid of strategy and RPG. And so that was the one that I decided would be the first game that I let's play entirely because it was something I was very comfortable and familiar with. That uh, by, by the time I was 17, I had beaten that game. I maybe four times or so, just because I just love those games. Okay. Well, I'm going to transition to what's your favorite game of all time? Deadly Premonition, uh, which is not a common pick. Uh, I can't say I've heard of it. What, what it's about? So Deadly Premonition, you may have seen a gif of it on Twitter or something. It is, uh, I really like janky video games. Games that were programmed astonishingly poorly, but had so much love and passion put into them and so much personality that you can kind of overlook it, which is why I like so many like... like games Eastern... so bad, it's good. Kind of. Not necessarily. Um, it's, it's kind of a branch of that. Uh, I do like a lot of so bad, it's good games, mind you. However, I'm a really big fan of like mid-2000s Eastern European PC games, or what I call Eurojank. They are games that were made in like post-Soviet states where the knowledge of programming is quite poor, but they have these really, really fascinating stories to tell and settings that they want to make. And they, they make these really incredible PC games, usually RPGs, that are barely functional, but they have ideas in it that you've never seen in another video game in your life. And it's so fascinating. And so I think it's my love of things like that is probably why I love Deadly Premonition so much. So Deadly Premonition was, I believe, a 2008 game by uh, Sweary65, who's a Japanese developer from a very small studio at the time. And it's just kind of a passion project of his that was originally like a bargain bin game for the Xbox 360. It, you look at the cover, it looks like this totally crap, generic $20 horror game. But what you end up getting if you play this game is you get this weird Twin Peaks-inspired Animal Crossing murder mystery where you're this eccentric detective with like some kind of alternate personality or something in his head that you're never quite sure what it is. He's, he's talking to someone called Zach who's not there. And you're like, is it another personality? Is there some kind of mystical element in this game? I don't know. You're like fighting like zombies, but no one else ever sees the zombies. And there's a, there's a murder mystery going on in here in a small town called Greenvale. And the majority of the game is driving around town, getting lunch at the diner, meeting all the townsfolk, trying to figure out this murder mystery. Everyone has their own daily schedule, hoping the game doesn't crash because it's programmed like crap. Uh, and 
it is a genuinely exciting, uh, emotional, fantastic video game on many levels. The reason I don't call it so bad it's good is because the bad things are kind of frustrating. The reason you love it is for the genuinely, really astonishingly well done things. It's it's a very quirky game, uh, and a lot of it I don't think was intentional. It's just it's made by a quirky guy. I like games. Uh, I, I tend to really like. Uh, what's the word for like an auteur game? Uh, a game made by one guy's vision who is very eccentric and meticulous. A great example of that would be the Metal Gear Solid series is very strictly Kojima's vision, uh, Hideo Kojima's vision, or at least it was. And the games are very strange because of that. And people love them because they have a lot of personality so heavily steeped in one guy that no one says no to. And that can either be disastrous or it can be just this crazy trip into someone's head. And so if the guy making it is fascinating enough, you'll come up with a very interesting product. And that's what happened with Deadly Premonition, which is why it's a cult classic. It barely functions on any console or PC that you buy it on, no matter how many times it gets re-released. It got re-released on the Nintendo Switch like five or six months ago. And even that version barely works. And it's been 11 years and that version has all new glitches, barely functions, uh, and yet it's just incredible. Like, I don't even, I don't even tend to like heavily story-driven games, and yet this game is almost all story. The combat sucks. The combat was an afterthought because the guy thought it wouldn't sell if it didn't have a combat. And so the combat sucks, the gameplay sucks, and yet I can't help but love every moment of this game, and I can't explain it beyond just, I don't know, Google the game, click a few videos, and you just see this. It is an experience you have never seen in any other video game. It is truly a unique piece of art. I so think, I, uh, I love that game. Mod, uh, shortly after this, we're done recording, honestly. Yeah, I, I actually did a 100% Let's Play of the game. Um, I had to mod it pretty heavily to get it to function properly, but because uh, the PC version is the glitchiest version, but also the best running if you can fix it. Because um, I think it's the only version that has 60 frames per second. Okay. Um, but, uh, oh man, if you, want, if you ever want to go on a wiki deep dive one day, you can find some fascinating stuff on that game. All right. Now, if it's okay, I'd like to get a little personal with you. Sure. Okay. So, um, What's it been like for your, your family, for your wife, that you've had this sudden transition to success? Because you, you mentioned that you've experienced your whole life living under the poverty level, and now all of a sudden you have all this money. What's it like for everybody around you? It's weird. Um, so for, so I, I have a small family. It's, um, it's me, my wife, my sister, my mom, my granny, and my uncle. Um, my mom is quite happy because she's always been a very big supporter of my channel. Uh, she's actually a big World of Warcraft player, so she completely understands what my job is. She loves YouTube. Um, Bitter so alliance. She, oh, uh, she is horde. Uh, um, and she also is very frustrated with modern retail. Well, like most people are, and she plays private servers. I love that. Um, but uh, we... Um, so she has always understood my job fully. She has always supported my job. Uh, she, she's always uh, understood that I work very hard on it and that I, I do have the skill set to do well at it one day. It's just a matter of when it'll happen. Um, 
my sister obviously is is quite happy with it. She was actually a YouTuber when she was a teenager. Uh, she doesn't do it anymore, but um, she, she's just happy to see her brother doing well. Um, I don't think my granny fully gets what it is. She's just really happy her grandson is doing well. And uh, my I think my uncle Stephen always knew I'd do something with video because he did stuff with video as well. He was a comic book artist and he does, uh, he does he edits uh, animations and films. He works on stuff like Babar. Uh, he lives in, in Hong Kong. And so he's part of the film industry over there. Um, and uh, I... And, and then my wife, uh, she's had a little bit of a hard time with the recent success because obviously she's incredibly proud of me and she's very happy with the influx of money because we don't have a debt anymore. And it's like, she could literally lose her job and we'd be fine. Like, it's it's great. She, her work stress is much less because for all of the awful rigmarole of her day job, worst case scenario, she gets fired. We don't need to worry about money. It's yeah. it's fine. I can handle it now. And that's that's great. I'm perfectly fine with it. Uh, if she decided not to work anymore, I just want her to do whatever makes her happy. But it has been stressful on her as well because um, she's always had a hard time with change. It's a it's a common problem that people have, and it is it's although very little around the house has changed, it is a, a lot to take in. That all of a sudden, oh, just out of nowhere over the course of these months, we're like considering immigration to another nation. We are looking into real estate. Uh, we need to figure out like okay. Um, what is the best kind of immigration visa that I could get? What what applies best to me? Who am I going to need to talk to? I'm going to need to get an accountant. Um, uh, how do we start transferring over all our accounts to like if we move to America? Then how um, you know what are what's the list of all the things we need to change over? Like I need to go to my Amazon affiliate links and redo my tax stuff because all of a sudden I'll be living in a different country. That's a big change. Um, there's very little has changed in how we live our day to day life. But so much has changed in terms of what we have to plan for. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, like, you know, we've always wanted to have kids and start a family, but it's always a thing of, well, we'll worry about that when we have the money that we can actually raise a kid. Okay, I can, I, I can go buy a house now. I, I can move to a place like North Carolina where it's cheap to live, buy a real proper house that I can grow old in and start a family. That's that's a big change to come out of nowhere and a lot of planning. So it has been very stressful uh, on her, but she is coming to terms with it pretty well now. And she's getting to uh, be a lot more comfortable and really start to see this as basically just a complete positive. There, there really is no negative to this. Well, that's so, so wonderful. I'm so yeah. happy for both of you and your whole family. This is <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So now if it's okay, I'm going to humble you just a little bit. Okay. What's something you failed at? Not necessarily gaming related, but just generally something you failed at. Because um, having success is one thing, but I, I want my viewers to understand that not everybody has always been successful. Of course. And I think people learn more through failure than they do from success anyway. Um, if you want to look at my YouTube channel as a business, even though I've, I mostly look at it as a creative outlet, even though it's literally my job and I treat it like a job, it is a creative outlet to a large degree for me, which is why I do so many things I wouldn't advise. Like if you're truly trying to make a really successful business and you have one series you do four times, uh, 14 times a week that gets like a thousand views and you got the one thing that gets 300,000 views in a week, maybe you just focus on that one, but I'm stubborn. So, um, but so failures, if you want to look at my channel as a business, oh, there's been plenty, you know, the, um, 
of all of the, I put a lot of time in a lot of those tips and tricks videos and only really two of them did super well. Uh, and, and if you want to say the Krupahest readings, uh, they did really well for me in the early days, but you know, I did like 120 of them and maybe 30 of them did really well. So that's not a great success ratio there. Um, uh, the, the, the game reviews I did never went anywhere at all. I just had fun making them. Um, so if you want to look at it from business perspective on the channel, sure, I failed uh, formats of videos quite a few times. Um, but I don't necessarily consider those failures so much as just fun little stretching of my creative legs. The things I'd consider more of failures and ones that I'm happy I learned from is um, I used to have an attitude problem for a really long time. I would say I only really started to clean up my attitude like, I'd say like three years ago maybe four years ago. Um, I don't know. I just, I was really jaded for a really long time and kind of like a, because I have some disabilities and they're not super bad. It's Ehlers Stanlos and it's cerebral palsy and it's mild cases of both. And I learned when I was like 20 or 21, I have aphantasia. Although um, I don't, I don't think that's what it was named back then because I know the name is actually quite recent. It's uh, the inability to picture things in your head. So I have conditions and they keep me from doing some things and living a totally normal life, but really it's not horrible. I can't drive and I can't like travel places on my own very well because I get lost. Those are the main ways that it impacts me. Now that I've got my body in good shape, um, the joint pains from Ehlers-Danlos aren't such a big deal anymore. Um, but still like, you know, I was by fluke born in a way that I have a lot of genetic issues. And that's, that's, you know, a hard thing to come to terms with. And it took me a long time to come to terms with is the important part. Yeah. I didn't let it hold me back. Um, eventually, because for a long time I'd make excuses for myself because of it. And when I started to get a better attitude and I stopped letting it, I, I now have an approach more of, it doesn't really matter that I had these things because what my idea used to be was that no matter what I do in life, I will have been, worse at it because of the circumstances I was born into. And maybe that is true on some level, but really everybody has so much wiggle room of their potential and what they can do in life and what they will do in life that even with all the conditions in the world, if I put my all into it, I'm still going to get so much more done than the average person. And it's not a competition. It's just a way of looking at it for myself where it's like, okay, truly I could be in way worse shape and still if I'm working this hard um I'm gonna make so many people happy like if I were in a wheelchair my life would be way worse but if I were still doing all this stuff and everything I'm doing right now I could like in terms of my job I could do in a wheelchair if I were to do all this stuff I would have still made so many people happy I get like four million views a month right now across my whole channel that is so many people that I am entertaining and I'm wildly proud of that and so yeah, it doesn't really matter as much as it used to feel like it did that I have these disabilities because I live a really normal life. I live a happy life. Uh, I make the people around me happy and I make millions of strangers happy. Like I'm, I'm making a good money so I can provide a good living for my family. And, you know, if if my sister's car breaks down or something, then I can just, I can throw the money at it and just fix it. And it's not something that, that we need to worry about. You know, I want to get my mom a house because, you know, she took care of me for so long and everything. And I want to make sure that she's taken care of because, you know, no one's taking care of her either than me and my sister, you know, make sure that she's doing okay. And my, I'm and so my glad uncle. to hear you say all that because so many people that I've met who find themselves into sudden wealth 
it's all about them. And they just go out mm -hmm. and splurge and, and binge spend as much money as they can and, and leave the little people behind. So I'm really proud to hear you say that because, you know, good for you. Yeah, and that's, that's how I've always tried to look at it is the most important thing in my life are the people that I care about, uh, whether I call them family because they're blood related or I call them family because they're so close that they may as well be. Um, I was below the poverty line on my income living in that one room in Toronto when um, my sister called my mom panicking because her car broke down on the highway. And so I, I literally just told my mom like, okay, tell uh, my sister to call me. And she called me and I literally just said like, uh, like uh, how much is it going to cost to fix? Cause she, she had already called like a, um, a car repair shop place or something or she she got on online with someone who um was able to give like a general appraisal i guess she gave me a ballpark number and then i literally just went on paypal and sent her that money and i was like all right i saved the money on paypal uh go get the car fixed you don't owe me anything don't worry about it uh that put me farther into debt but i don't care because whatever, I'll pay it off one day. Uh, I wasn't about to starve to death or anything. And what's more important is that she's taken care of. That's wonderful. And so we've never, like the two of us have never talked about it ever again, because it, that's just kind of how we operate as a family is like that, that the money didn't matter. All that mattered is that the problem got solved and that we're all okay. All right. That's so wonderful. Okay. I would like to go back to, you know, the streaming and gaming and content creating if we can. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what's something that you think people misunderstand about you the first time they see one of your videos or see you on a stream or you know, the first time they come across you? What's something they misunderstand about you? See, that's, that's hard to, uh, to, to say because, uh, I mean, I, I guess I can't really fully know what they're thinking when they see me. It's just whatever they choose to say. Yeah. Um, a lot of people don't know how long I've been on, on kind of just doing online stuff because, um, I, I guess it's just I look fairly young, and I, I guess I am fairly young. I'm 27, but um, you know, I started when I was a teenager, and that was less common back then uh, to to keep doing it. I guess when you start as a teenager, um, and so usually when you think of like a, a veteran of YouTube, you think uh, I don't know Philip DeFranco, someone who feels like they've been there since like the very beginning, and. Um, like a lot of my oldest videos are unlisted now, but I still have them in playlists so that people can watch them and see how far I've come. But they're just not, they're not public so that it's never someone's first impression of me because they're so unwatchably bad by today's standards. Um, so I think the most common thing that people probably maybe not misunderstand but don't know is that I've been here forever and I've been doing just a billion things. And the, the common thing that people misunderstand about me that I see now is I do see a lot of comments of people coming in and just saying like, oh, he's that Pokemon guy or oh, um, he, you know, you go on his channel and he's got like, a, his last 10 videos have a thousand or 2000 or 5000 views. Like he, this is not a full-time job or um, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Those are good numbers a, for videos. I don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, but they what they don't notice is that every week I have a video that gets like 300 thousand views to over a million views and the channel views are very large as a result it's a lot of things over a lot of years like i have good advice to give and i've been advising people behind the scenes for a long time just because i want to see them succeed um like i'm 
I'm friends with the head editor of Game Theory, one of the biggest YouTube channels in gaming. They have like 10 million or something subscribers. I'm friends with the head editor of that show. He's a really good friend of mine, Dan. And I've given him advice on descriptions and tags and titles and stuff uh, because he's fantastic. I want to see his personal channel take off. And that was advice that I was giving him and advice that did very well before I started having this explosion. I'm doing the same thing that I've been telling people to do for years. And just all of a sudden, everyone can now visually see like, oh, he did know what he was talking about. He was right. Like he was telling anyone who would listen when he did the first couple Pokemon challenges that, oh, this will sit around, these Pokemon challenges will sit on my channel for three months, picking up tiny bits of views here and there and suggestive videos. And then overnight will explode on the homepages and get about 150,000 views. That is what I would tell people. Lo and behold, the only thing I was wrong about was it took two months, not three months. And the number of 150,000 views was a vast, vast underestimate. Um, what I was wrong about is it did way better than I thought it would and a little faster than I thought it would. But the process was exactly what I said it was going to be because I've seen it happen so many times and I know how the algorithm works. Oh, that's incredible. So you just have so much advice. I'm so glad you were willing to come on with us today. Thank you. Yeah, well, I have a couple fun. more questions before we wrap up though. Yeah. Um, so what, what would you say the best compliment you've ever received either in your comments or in your chat has been because, you know, you've had to have had a ton and what, what are the ones that have like really hit you? Okay. Uh, I have had a ton. I, I'm going to give you three answers here because these are like the top three. They're all different breeds of compliment. One, every time I guest on someone's show, uh, a ton of people hate me. And so I love finding the most creative ways they have to put me down. And I love this one so much. Uh, and so it's not technically a compliment, but I take it as one because it's so creative and so funny that I wish I came up with it. This guy looks like he thinks he's the coolest guy at the Magic of the Gathering tournament. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's really good. Um, <laughs> uh, but the, the most flattering... Uh, comment or my or my favorite uh, compliments, I guess. One is the aforementioned people who would say you feel like a three hundred thousand subscriber channel because that really was validation for me and really boosted my confidence in some way. Of people who didn't see the subscriber count, they weren't looking at it, thought that oh, this is a big great channel. This feels like someone who is really doing well. And that, that really made me feel good because it's like, okay, I am doing something right. The content is not necessarily why I'm not growing very fast. Um, and the, the other one, and I get this one a lot and I totally understand it because it's the way I was, especially when I was like a, in my late teens, early twenties and things were really rough, um, is I often get messages usually like direct messages, but sometimes just like a tweet or a comment or something that just says like, hey man, uh, I've been going through a really rough time. It's almost always like a breakup or a death in the family or like parents divorce, something really rough. And they just tell me like, I've, I have been having a really, really rough time. You're the first thing to make me laugh in weeks. And I just wanted you to know like how much that means to me and that it's helping me through a really rough time. And I really appreciate those comments because that's exactly how that's I was crazy. when I was with a lot of the really rough things that I went through when I was younger. 
um, it was just like really good YouTube videos and content creators online that I loved that were able to make me laugh when I just couldn't smile for weeks. And that was able to get me laugh. And it started to help me kind of get out of that negative funk and start to look at things more positively again. Mm -hmm. And so I, I will say that's something that a lot of comment or a lot of YouTubers get that. I bet you just about any YouTuber who is beyond 3,000 subscribers is probably going to tell you that exact same thing, that they get comments like that. And it's funny because almost every time I get a comment like that, they, they always say, you probably hear this all the time, but don't let that stop you from telling it to someone because it is still a really touching thing to say to someone and they will appreciate it a lot. It doesn't matter how many times you hear it, it still really makes your day. Well, that is so wonderful. Now I'm going to do on the flip side. So you mm -hmm. got the, the nice compliments. What's the worst trolling you've ever received? Well, there's this one guy who said that I look like the coolest guy at a Magic Gathering <laughs> tournament. Um, uh, I, I guess it depends on our definition of trolling. Like if we want to go like old school definition of trolling of just like a really good online prank, I don't think, any, I don't think that's ever happened with me. If we want to go with like the mean stuff, um, when I was living in that one room in Toronto, uh, someone, some group of people on Reddit decided it'd be really funny to go around to random uh, streamers, like Twitch and, and Hitbox streamers and stuff, and start DDoSing them so their internet would go down during the stream. Um, they picked me, and it's literally like, at that point, it's like, okay, I'm below the poverty line. Uh, money's really, really bad. We're living in this one room apartment and everything. I am trying to stream in like the three hours a day I would have that I'd be able to stream and trying to make a little bit of money and trying to put on a little bit of show for the people who've been watching me for these years and you're bringing my internet down. Like that is, that is a truly awful thing to do. And I'm sure they didn't know my story or anything. They really did seem like it's just a bunch of teenagers going from stream to stream being dicks, but that was probably the meanest one because it's hard not to let that get to you. That, that sucks. Sure, but at, at the very least, I'm, I'm watching you say these things and you have a smile on your face. So at least you yeah. can see the humor in it looking back now. Oh yeah, because that's, that's the thing is like, that's how me and my mom have always dealt with everything is just dark humor of, we, we, we laugh it off because we've been through worse than getting DDoSed, whatever. We lost our house that year. Like we've been through way worse than that. We, we were making jokes about losing our house as we were moving things in the car. Like, uh, whatever. I, I can laugh about everything at this point. Sure. All right. So I have noticed that you're probably gonna have to vacuum after this interview because you've dropped a lot of names. Um, mm -hmm. So what's the community of YouTubers like? It sounds like you're, you know some of them and they know mm -hmm. you. What, what's that community like? It's hard to say because people say like the YouTube community and in reality it's a million small communities that have a lot of overlap. It's like a Venn diagram that has one million circles and it's wild. Um, so I, there's a lot of YouTubers that I know very well that I consider very close friends. There's ones that are acquaintances. There's, there's ones that, you know, they watch me or I watch them, but it's not mutual. Like there's this gigantic web of stuff like that. But in general, what I will say is your average YouTuber who is even mildly successful in this and growing and putting their all into it is probably a really good person and you're probably going to get along. And sure, there's, there's plenty of times where two good people don't get along because the personalities don't match up. That's just a common thing in life. 
for the most part, though, you have so much in common with every other YouTuber of generally your size that you're probably going to get along once you're past like a few hundred subscribers. The worst YouTubers I've ever met in terms of being just jerks and not knowing what they're talking about, but they act like they know everything and all of that. I met most of them when I was like under 500 subscribers. That is where you get the, the largest quantity of people with real bad attitudes because their bad attitude is what's holding them back. Um, the majority of YouTubers, like we all, everybody seems to think like there's all these YouTubers at the very top who are just total scumbags. And there are some, but it only feels like there's so many because they're at the very top. And some of them at the very top are scumbags. It's really not all of them. People focus on the negative. The majority of YouTubers that you reach out to and you message who can immediately recognize that you're putting effort in just like they are, you have a baseline level of respect with them that, that things are going to be fine. Even people from other fields, like um, I, got, I got messaged by um, Travis Banks a few weeks back. I'm a massive pro wrestling fan, and so I'm a big fan of Travis Banks. He's a pro wrestler on WWE's uh, NXT. And I'm a fan of his. So when he messaged me, it's like, whoa, like I'm a big fan of this guy. Turns out he was a big fan of me. He's a big Pokemon fan. And now we talk like uh, a few times a week. And he works in a completely different field of me. But we both are very hardworking individuals who happen to have something in common. And so we get along really well. And that's, that's kind of what I've found is YouTubers are brought together through a shared, not just a shared passion, but that they are both passionate. P passionate people like passionate people, and passionate people tend to rise the to the top of YouTube. Okay, so you've said you give lots of advice to people. What's mm -hmm. something that you see YouTubers, either big or small, doing incorrectly or wrong that you just want them to know? Mm. Um, well, t tagging to some degree, but if you're big enough, you can get away with having bad tagging. Uh, if, hmm. I would say the most common thing that when I see it, like you can be successful in spite of it, but when I see it, like I just want to sit down and talk to them and be like, you know, there's, there's this one thing, you don't need to worry about this so much, is I, I have a really good uh, radar for when someone is trying to put on an act and not put on an act in a way of like trying to deceive people, although plenty of people do that and that sucks. But when it's like, someone is very uncomfortable and they're trying to put on this over-the-top personality because they think that's what people want to see and they, they, they don't think they're interesting enough, they don't think they're exciting enough, so they're, they're trying to be this big personality and I can kind of see through that and I can see like, ah, they're kind of uncomfortable and they've got a lot of self-doubt and everything. Um, and some people see that as, oh, they're being fake. This happens a lot in Pokemon communities, actually. There's a lot of Pokemon YouTubers. Uh, I won't say any names because I, I don't want them... I don't want to like call them out and be like, ah, you're, you have low self-esteem. No, I'm not <laughs> going to do that. Um, but there's a lot where part of their big personality is not that they just have a big personality. Some people do. It's that they feel uncomfortable and they're trying to be something that doesn't quite fit them. And what I try to remind those people when I get in a conversation with them is people like you more than you think you do when you're yourself as long as you talk about what you're really passionate about, your passion will come through and you will be naturally excited. And the, the biggest YouTuber in the history of the platform 
did get big when he was doing stuff that he thought would be funny and what he thought people wanted to see. But nowadays, he's the biggest he's ever been. And he regrets those times and says, I should just be more confident with myself. That's PewDiePie. That's why PewDiePie is so different now than he used to be. Because he says, in his own words, that, paraphrased, of course, I don't remember the exact words, but he said that he used to be uncomfortable. He used to just yell and scream because he thought that's what people wanted to watch. But when he started to tone it down a little bit and just be goofy in his own way, he realized people liked that more. And people liked him him as a person they didn't necessarily they they say that they like pewdiepie but they really like felix you know it's pewdiepie is just the name they have for him and so when he became natural and became himself is when he had the biggest the biggest success he ever had on the platform and every time i've ever seen somebody be more of themselves they have slowly started to do better and so i think that's that's fairly universal advice i think i can give to people Okay, thank you so much. So MDB, we've been going for nearly an hour and a half. This is probably yeah. my longest interview so far. <laughs> awesome. Um, how do people get a hold of you? How do they find you? I mean, where are you at? Uh, I'm on YouTube and Twitch and Discord and Twitter. And I sometimes update Instagram. Uh, if you just search the dry bread on Google, you'll get all of my stuff. All you really need is just go to my YouTube go to my newest video and the description will have a link to all of my stuff. Uh, I tweet an unhealthy amount because it's funny to me and I do not take Twitter seriously at all, which makes it fun and not a depressing cesspool. Um, it, you can find, I'm so easy to reach. My Discord DMs are still open and I still try to respond to everyone that I can, even though it's impossible to keep up with, I try my best. Um, every time I go up here online on Steam, it's like an impromptu AMA. It's wild. Um, you, you can find me everywhere if you just search my name. I have an account on like every platform. Okay, wonderful. Now we're, we're wrapping up. Is there anything I didn't ask you you think we still need to talk about? Uh, the greatest form of art in the world is professional wrestling. That's all you need to know. I will let you have your opinion on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I love it to death. Like, seriously, I've gotten so many people into pro wrestling just through talking about how much I love it. But that, that's a story for another day. Absolutely. All right, MDB, I really, really do appreciate you coming on with us today. This has been absolutely fantastic. And I'm going to promote the heck out of this one because this is awesome. one of the most yeah, important videos I've put out so far. Yeah, it's fun. All right. Well, on that note, I'm going to say thank you again. And you take it easy. You too. Have a nice day. Hey, if you like this podcast, I'd love to invite you to check out a little bit more about me, Dr. Bradford Carlton, Gamerpreneur. If you go to my website, www.thegamerpreneur.com slash bonus, I'm going to give you a free copy of my book, The Warcraft of Business, where I explain my history in both gaming and business and how I brought the two together in order to create some very successful companies and help a lot of people. And all you got to do is pay for shipping and processing, and I'll send you this book. I, I absolutely know you're going to love it. All right. You all take it easy.